Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast, on which I chat with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On today's episode, I am joined by the wonderful and brilliant Becca Rothfeld, who is an essayist and contributing editor at The Point. She and I discuss the themes of her essay in issue three of Liberties entitled Sanctimony Literature, which is currently available for a short time on our website in the now showing section. Um, We discuss the relationship between politics and art and how to evaluate art that is political, uh, which are the themes of her essay. And we also talk a little bit about the controversy that the essay generated. Hello, Becca Rothfeld. Thank you for joining us on Liberty's Talk today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It is a pleasure. And you're here. Um, we were going to talk about your essay called Sanctimony Literature, which is in issue three of Liberty's Periwinkle issue. So for those who have not had the pleasure of reading it yet, can you just give like a short summary of what what the piece is about? Yes, I will do my best. So I think that the piece has several sections that make several different arguments. Uh, it begins out making a descriptive argument about the state of contemporary fiction. Um, and I, I point to authors like Sally Rooney uh, and Ben Lerner, although there's other authors that I could have pointed to. Um, I chose those two authors in part because I'd written about them at length elsewhere. Um, and my claim about their books is that their books are extremely didactic. Uh, They have very black and white characters who are sort of uh, uncomplicatedly villainous or saintly. Um, And so the books have a sort of young adult fiction-y flavor. uh, And they also are almost condescending to their readers and that they treat their readers as uh, morally juvenile. Um, So that's the first part of the piece. Then Then I make the argument that... Uh, literature is aesthetically impoverished to the extent that it is sanctimonious. Um, and I also sort of conclude that having having the right political conclusions doesn't make a work of fiction morally good, nor does it make it aesthetically good. But there's another way of being morally good that is a necessary if insufficient condition for being a good work of fiction. Uh, so the, the Rooney book and the, and the Ben Lerner book, on my reading anyway, although they come to the quote-unquote right political conclusions, conclusions I happen to agree with, um, so they're politically good, they're not ethically good because they lack this quality that uh, Lionel Trilling describes as quote-unquote moral realism is his term for it. Um, and moral realism is a, an ethical property that I think is a necessary for fiction to be aesthetically good, and it is a, a willingness to interrogate dogma. Uh, a sort of intellectual curiosity that amounts to a virtue. The very beginning of the piece is a criticism of the infiltration of politics into like realms of realms of life where it doesn't belong. Right? Is that that's fair to say? I think that everything can be described as political because everything takes place in a political context, uh, but we shouldn't think of all value as political. I think one one might have started reading your piece. I think I wondered about this while I was reading it. Like, is a work of art necessarily lesser um, because it has a political message? Which someone could misinterpret your essay as arguing that, but it's not. It's that's not a proper understanding of what you're saying because there are plenty of books that both of us would consider good books, or or plenty of like art um, paintings and movies that we would consider good um, that have overt political messages, but they're 
the value or yeah, the value of those works are not um, to be evaluated on the basis of those messages, right? Well, I think that maybe in some context, sometimes it's appropriate to evaluate something on the basis of its political message. I mean, if if it's a I suppose we've limited the discussion to artworks, but if, if you're if you're reading some artwork in a political philosophy class, then okay, you can evaluate uh, you can evaluate it on the basis of the sort of plausibility of its political conclusions. Uh, but I think that something is not something that has the right politics may nonetheless not be aesthetically valuable uh, unless it has some additional aesthetic and moral qualities. And so I think that of co- of course I agree with you. Uh, there's plenty of books that I love that I think have. Uh, relatively overt political messages, plenty of novels that I love that have relatively overt uh, political messages, but they tend to uh, approach approach their subject matter with a genuine moral curiosity, uh, with with some measure of epistemic humility. They don't uh, they don't present things in such Manichaean terms. Uh, and they also, something that I should have said earlier is that in my piece, part of what I think is so Manichaean about the, about the Rooney books in particular, um, is that the, the characters either fall into the villain bucket very neatly, uh, or the politically enlightened luminary bucket very neatly. So I think that the, the works of art, uh, that have political messages that I like tend to nonetheless have characters who are a bit more modeled. The two examples of the villains you give are like people who were considering taking seriously a view that they didn't agree with. Like they were both debaters, which was sort of shocking. I, I mean, I, I have to admit that I have never read any of these books. Um, so I was really surprised. I have never encountered a villain who was villainous purely because they were willing to consider a view that they didn't already agree with. They also in the Rooney books, the, the mean, the capital M mean characters uh, are the characters who are interested in sadomasochistic sex. The capital G good characters who capital R respect women um, are the ones who want to hold them tenderly. Uh, so those, those are the two qualities they have. They have. <laughs> she doesn't actually capitalize those letters, does she? No, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm being a bit of a, a mean person. I'm a mean person myself. No, I mean, it's, it's overt enough. It's like <laughs> the, the message is clear. Um, so when did you start noticing this? Probably like right after I graduated from college, which is kind of when I started, kind of when I realized that fiction had been published after like 1980 <laughs> and started reading some of it. So this idea was like sort of percolating for a few years. The, and I guess like there are, there were um, germs of this essay in reviews that you've written um, of Rooney. And I guess, have you written reviews of Lerner also? I have, but I actually really love Lerner's first two books. I think that they're not like this at all. In fact, I, part of what I love about them is I think that they have um, both of their protagonists like look foolish and they look morally foolish frequently. The books are not afraid to embarrass themselves. This this last book seems like more of a an effort at sort of self promotion, uh, moral self promotion or something. Is it a mea culpa? Like, is he trying to ask forgiveness for having created complex characters in previous works? I'm not sure that I would read it that way. I think that maybe he's just sort of swept up in the in the tides of recent trendiness. Yeah, where do you think this comes from? Well, as, as I said in another recent interview, I think some of it just comes from the way the publishing industry is structured. So I think that now, given social media, given scarcity of resources for authors and so on, um, when when you want to publish and promote your book, part of what publishers expect you to do is promote yourself. You become a walking advertisement for your book. Uh, and insofar as your book is autofictional, your book is an advertisement for you. Uh, so there's plenty of incentive for your book to be uh an advertisement for your good politics. 
in in the current climate given marketing considerations. That's I think that's one explanation. It's not as if current politics don't have many themes that are actually complicated and would create, you know, the, the conditions for a good novel. It's not like you can't, you couldn't advertise these kinds of politics in the same way that other books that we admire advertise other kinds of politics and still have it be a good book. Like where does the pressure come from to simplify everything? And I guess that's what, like, I was wondering if the problem isn't politics generally as these politics that, that kind of force adherence to simplify things like in a way that's completely unrealistic that doesn't have to do with real life. I wonder about that. I mean, I think that it must be the case. So I, I think that that can't be true because I, I, I think that um, it can, there are plenty of novelists in the past who had sort of similarly leftist politics who are, in my opinion, much better and more nuanced novelists uh, than people like, well, not Lerner, his first two books, which are good, but in Rooney's books and in Lerner's books and other books that I don't like, uh, like, like Orwell is like a committed leftist. And I don't think that Orwell is like the greatest novelist ever, but I think that he's a, he's a good novelist uh, and, a, and a great essayist or like Baldwin has committedly leftist politics. And again, I think he's a better essayist than novelist, but I think he's a good novelist. Um, so I think that it doesn't follow from the politics themselves, uh, the content of the politics anyway. I think that it it follows from I wouldn't I wouldn't put these these politics in the same category as those politics. I think I think it's a mistake to uh, like equate this whatever it is that's animating this this sort of miasma with leftist thinking generally. I think it's a different kind of thing because as you say, you you actually I mean if if you were just going to talk policy um, with these writers, you would agree with most of what they have to say. Yeah, I certainly would. But I, I hope that if and when I write a novel, it is not uh, of the sort. Exactly. So I think there's something there's something different going on here. It's not just about it. It's not leftist politics, you know, in the same way that the other you and the other authors that you just mentioned would would identify yourselves. I guess it's sort of like the interesting question for me, or one of the interesting questions for me is, um, are there particular political views, the expression of which is just impossible in anything other than a sanctimonious form? Uh, because that, that would be an explanation for like why, why these novels are so sanctimonious if it were the case that the particular brand of leftist politics endorsed by Rooney or whatever were such that it's impossible to write a book uh, promoting those theses. But I, th- I think that that isn't true because I think that her politics are quite similar to, to George Orwell's or something. Um, and so I, I think that it ha- the explanation has to not has to be elsewhere than in the content of her political views. And I think, I think that it is in the, in the broader structure of publishing at the moment, combined with the structure of social media and and the, in the way, the way those two things are coming together. I mean, autofiction is in some ways, as I argue in the piece, a bit of an extension of social media and that it, it doesn't have to be, but it can be a way of advertising yourself. And I think that that has what it's, what it's become. Of course, Rooney isn't writing autofiction. So that's an argument more about learner and maybe some other people. No, but the simplification of it and the digestibility of it, like how the fragments, that was a great um, example that you gave of how easy it is to just run, like gobble these books down because they're not, um, they're not giving you a lot to chew on. It's it's like candy. That's a great way to put it. I'm actually writing an essay about fragment novels right now. So I read a ton, a ton of them. Um, I mean, so I think that the question of why the books are sanctimonious and maybe the question of why they are so, um, why they're pabulum, uh, 
are related, but not, not, it's not quite the same question, but some, some of the fragment books I think are not totally sanctimonious, but are nonetheless like extremely easy to read. And I, I mean, that just might have to do with the destination of people's attention spans and also with like marketability considerations. Um, but I think the sanctimony thing in particular very much has to do with the idea that books represent you, uh, and for reader, for readers too, I should have said, both with the idea that authors are represented in their books and so their books are fora in which they can promote themselves and with the people demand that books reflect them exactly. There's this idea that you should be represented in the literature that you're reading and that it should be quote unquote relatable to you, uh, which means that if you're reading a book with politics that you think are abhorrent or with politics that are a little bit ambivalent, maybe you as a reader begin to feel bad about yourself. But of course I reject this model of reading, but I think that it's one that's increasingly common. So that's another explanation. Common for whom, though? Because the expectations that are set by publishing houses or by agents about what a reader expects from their authors is not necessarily representative of most readers. I guess, like another another way to ask this question is like, are there are there good, well selling books now that don't do this, that don't make this mistake? I guess it's hard for me to know that exactly because I don't. There certainly are books that are that are beloved. Um, and that are contemporary that I think are good, which I could name, but I actually don't know how well selling they are. I, I, I don't think, I think that anywhere where there are intellectually curious people with integrity, they're going to be readers who don't fall into this trap of demanding uh, that they are able to identify completely with the characters that they read or something. But I, I think that this is a model of reading that is to some extent promoted by major publishers and to some extent endorsed increasingly by the public, even if there are dissenters. Um, but there are, of course, like, I think that Joshua Cohen is a contemporary novelist who rejects this kind of approach. Norman Rush, rather old, but he, he's not like this. Helen DeWitt is not like this. Uh, Phil Clay is not like this. Do you think that writers who are coming up now are given, are, are pressured to write in this way? Maybe just because I get, maybe just because the preeminent novelists of the, of the period are writing this way. And so they feel like they have to as well. I think it's both that and that there's financial incentive to, um, I mean, at a very concrete level, like the, the books, the books that are seemingly to me again, because I don't know, but the books that seem like they're getting, uh, that they're most successful and, and consequently the kind of books that publishers in the future will want to buy are these books that are designed to allow people to say, I see myself exactly in that book. Uh, and that, allow, that allows the author to say, this book is a perfect representation of me. So I think that there are lots of incentives for people to write like this. It's such a small pool of people who would see themselves in those, in those characters, though. I mean, that's what's, I guess that's what's kind of confusing to me about this. It's not like Twitter is representative of all re- or most readers in the country. I mean, even, even like, yeah, it just doesn't feel, it, it feels like that's a, that's a mistake that most, most people who read books want to be given a very simple, you know, perfect picture of their own life and what they, what they think that they're supposed to look like and that this is it. You're more optimistic than I about the reading public. No, I, I, I agree with you, but I think that also people's tastes are shaped by what's available to them. So I, I think that for the, the younger generation with whom I only have a little bit of contact in the form of my students who are, who are brilliant, but I think that, um, some kind of just reflexive endorsement of these politics on social media is very much their uncritical mode, which isn't to say that they're not capable of being critical or something, but I, I do think that that the average uh, maybe like 20 year old is somebody who does want to want to see themselves as having the, the political views of one of Rooney's characters. 
uh, the, I mean, the average person who would be buying like literary fiction, who's like 20, I think might, maybe not if, if, if thinking about it seriously or like bringing their critical faculties to bear, but, um, cause I mean, Rooney's books are actually, I, I, I don't know exactly how many copies they sold, but I do know that they're like wildly successful and like easily adaptable into this Netflix series and blah, blah, blah. That's partially because of their politics and it's partially because they're like romance novels. And so people want to see themselves in the book for the different reason that the female characters are beloved by all men, even though they have no qualities. <laughs> how, how is this? So your essay got a lot of, um, heated responses generated a lot of heated responses on social media. And I think you also got some emails. Is that right? I did. I got a lot of emails. Of course, all the, all the emails are positive. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm glad you got some, you know, empowerment from this. So does that mean that you don't really have a sense of how um, tragically misunderstood you were? Or do you, do you have some sense? I have a bit of a sense. I, I deleted my Twitter, which was, um, good and I don't regret it and I recommend that everyone with the Twitter remove themselves from the cesspool that is Twitter but I saw I saw some of the things that people said about the piece both because my friends sent them to me and because I masochistically sought them out I, I don't think that Twitter as anyone reading the piece would conclude uh, my view is not that Twitter is a great forum for having serious intellectual exchanges in which you really explain what your objections to somebody's view are so I did have a bit of a difficult time piecing together what exactly the objections to the piece were. I think that some people read the piece as, as, as promoting aestheticism, the view, the view like art for art's sake, the view that aesthetics is either prior to everything else uh, or is totally separable from and insulated from the ethical. Uh, of course, that is the opposite of my view. My view is that aesthetic value is bound up with moral value. It's just that moral value, in my opinion, is not reducible to political value, even though it's political value is one dimension of moral value. So I think one, one strain of objections centered on pushing back against the idea that aestheticism is good, that art for art's sake is good, arguing that, in fact, the moral quality of a work of fiction bears on its artistic value. But I agree. So that doesn't seem to me like a objection to the piece, really. That does sound like a that sounds like a mis- the misinterpretation that I foresaw a little bit, or at least like a a, a, a deliberate misreading, because you would have had to not read the end of the piece in order to understand that that's not what you were saying. But like basically, oh, she's arguing that art should be devoid of politics, um, because maybe they read the first paragraph in which you say that politics has infiltrated many realms. Uh, where it wasn't before. But yeah, as you say, you get to that and are you pretty strongly in the opposite direction? Yeah, if I have any regrets, it's like, I wish that maybe I had, um, or like maybe in a subsequent essay, I could do this. I, I think that it, w- it would be instructive for me to pick a novel that I do think has clear politics and a clear political message that I think is good and then explain uh, why that novel manages to do that without engaging in sanctimony. I think Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman is one example, in my opinion. You give that example. <laughs> you even give the example in the essay. But I mean, I could do like an extended reading, sort of explaining, like, this book is definitely anti-fascist. It's like very clearly anti-Nazi. Uh, nonetheless, the characters are complex, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think some people also just object to the idea that there is any aspect of ethics that is untainted by the political um, and I think that 
I have some difficulty understanding why, just of course, because I'm getting this view in, in parts on Twitter. If I were to imagine sort of my most charitable reading of the view, it would just be that I think in some intellectual traditions, people define politics differently. And so they define sort of uh, intellectual curiosity as falling under the rubric of a political virtue, in which case, I guess we agree, if that's how you define political, then yeah, sure, uh, the aesthetic value of fiction depends on its political value. But I read political as a narrower subset of things. I mean, even if it is a component of your evaluation of a work, it's not the primary component of it. And it, fa- it's, it feels like, yeah, I think, I think, is it, would you, would you say that this is a difference of emphasis? Like, it's not that you don't think politics has nothing to do with art. It's that it shouldn't be the only thing you need to know about a work of art. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I think that it's it's not just that I think that uh, art is not apolitical. I, 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 I do think that. I think that art is political in the sense that m- many works of art have political messages. Art is produced in political circumstances that can be fully discussed. It's also that I take the further step. I do think that aesthetic value is bound up with moral and political value. It's just that the, it's, the relationship between those things is more complicated than oh, this book promotes Marxist politics. I'm a Marxist, therefore it's a good book. Uh, one has to ask how how the Marxist politics are promoted. I'm not a Marxist myself, but that's just an example. You could do it the, like in a flip way and just say like, okay, imagine a novel that is structurally the same. The good people are very obviously capital G good. The bad people are capital B bad. Um, it's just that it's written by somebody with radically different politics than you know Sally Rooney. Um, and then it would be, it, it would be like exactly the same thing just flipped upside down. Um, and we would have exactly the same problem with that. And it's not that, it's not that the ideas are, um, it's not that you're engaging critically with the ideas and you just think that Sally Rooney is wrong about everything as we've already said. It's just that that should not be, whether or not an author has the right, is voting in the right way, has nothing to do with whether or not they're writing a good book. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like a book that is, uh, conservative and like a laughable and there must be there must be some uh, I you know grew up in um a religious conservative Zionist world and I remember like I one of the reasons that I (laughs) finally left was like I was on a summer program where we read a book you I'm sure you've never heard of I don't even remember the name of it I think it was like the second seal or something and it was like it's written by Anne Klein who is a Zionist Canadian writer and it was just a bad book um, it was doing all of the things that you describe Rooney as having done. And it's not even like, like set aside whether or not I agree with very simple ana- political analysis that he has. It was just like, we're only reading this because you want us to think these things. Um, and if that's how we're picking what it is that we read, I don't want to be on this team. That seems, that seems completely right to me. Isn't that funny that it's exactly the same thing, just depending on like where you happen to have been raised or where you're racinated? Yeah, because I don't think, I mean, I'm struggling to think of a novel that I've read that I think is like even, that I would even describe as sort of having conservative politics. I mean, I guess there's some D.H. Lawrence where it's, it's not conservative exactly, but it's conservative in the sense that it's like a communitarian or something like that. But there, there's definitely other, I certainly think that um, there are other examples of that I could have chosen that also have ostentatiously leftist politics, but that would have annoyed people less because the politics are a little outmoded or something. Like I think the mayor of Casterbridge is Thomas Hardy's worst book. Uh, And I think that that's because the book is really heavy handed and it's presentation of the moral situation. Um, Even though the book is like very obviously feminist, it's just feminist in a totally unsubtle way. I think that's also true of 
the book Venus and Furs, for example. But nobody nobody cares about those books, and the the feminist messages of both of those books have since become uh, mainstream. So, so those books, one of saying that about those things doesn't offend anyone. Well, and you can't say anything about those things because the the point is to offend people. But I mean, it it, it is true that this isn't just a this isn't just about it's not a commentary on only on literature. It's also about contemporary culture and how digestible we want everything to be. Yeah, that is certainly true. I mean, I also do, I, I do make the claim that like, I do not think that all, uh, all value that I would categorize as ethical. I, it, of course, depending on how you define these terms, maybe I, I could come to agree with somebody who defines political differently and just think that we have a verbal dispute. But the way that I understand the word political, I do not think that all ethical value is political, even if I think that all people live in political contexts and so on and so forth. I, I, it doesn't seem to me um, apt to describe sort of like interpersonal kindness as a, as a political virtue or vice, uh, but I think that's important. I think there are there are like a situations in which it's it's relevant to a conversation about politics. It's just not the it's not the primary prism through which to see something like interpersonal relationships. It just why reduce everything to um, to the political interpretation of it? Even if you could say that there's something that can be derived about politics from anything, it's not it, it is of course not the primary thing that can be derived about everything. Yeah, or or maybe maybe it is it's equally good as anything else. Like I mean, because I I do like like political analyses of art, for example. It's just that I I'm a pluralist. I think that art can be treated in like a wide range of ways. And part of what I think it's interesting to say about a given work of art has to do with what has already been said. You don't want to say what's already been said. That's standard, at least in academia. If every if every article about the book is about the book's politics, then maybe it's time to write one about some other aspect of the book. Wait, so can you give an example of a political analysis of a work of art that you do think is interesting? I mean, as, like as an evaluation of the work itself, not trying to understand the period, not trying to understand the artist, just as in order to interpret the value of the work. That's a good question. I, I guess I'm not defining political precisely because I don't know that I think my interlocutors, perhaps they could define it precisely, but they haven't. Because the kind of paradigm case I have in mind is like, I, I like reading Lukash. Um, but I think that what he is doing is he's making claims about art that have to do with his political commitments. He describes the world in like a basically Marxist way. And so that's like the framework that's informing his analysis. But I, I don't know that he's actually evaluating the work um, with, re- with respect to its political commitments. I haven't seen someone do this, but like I can imagine it being done. There's one Philip Roth book that I hate because it's sexist. And I think that it's sexism makes it a bad book. That's the human theme. So I, I can imagine someone, or here's an example. Laura Marsh, Laura Marsh that is the like current literary editor of the New Republic. She had a piece about the Philip Roth biography by Blake Bailey, um, where she argues that the book is, is really sexist. It's Of course, it's a biography, so we're not expecting it to have the qualities that a work of literary fiction would have necessarily. But I think she makes a compelling case that like this makes the book bad intellectually. And it also sounds like it's bad aesthetically, like in virtue of its sexism. So like, I think it's possible to do that. It's just that probably there's also other things that can be said about that book and, and have been, there've been reviews that focus on other things. Yeah. That's interesting. That's an interest. That's a good example. Because if, if it's, if it's, if there's like some kind of um, blinder that a, an artist has because of a kind of poor political choice, like if they're if they just hate women and the fact that they hate women makes it difficult for them to have 
I don't know, a charitable interpretation of a female character. I'm not saying I didn't, I didn't read the biography and I also didn't read the piece you're describing. So I don't know if that's what she was saying, but that like is an interesting example. Or like, I think it would be appropriate to hate like the Jew of Malta because it's anti-Semitic because that it's full of caricatures. And so it's, it is a simplistic work. I mean, it is sort of sanctimonious might not be the way to describe it, but it ha- it has all the flaws that sanctimony literature has. It like has characters who are caricatures and such, but that's, that's in virtue actually of its, bad political commitments right but i mean the you know the, you could say the same thing about the merchant of venice but you wouldn't dislike it just because shylock is a caricature i mean or you shouldn't even if it's too uncomfortable well i think that that's true but i think that, well i think it depends on sort of other qualities of the work of art because there certainly are works of art that i think are bad because their characters are caricatures like that is something that can make work of fiction bad if it doesn't have other redeeming qualities I was uh, I was at the the Noya Gallery looking at like one of the Sheila paintings of you know a woman who was emaciated and um, someone came like I was you know entranced because I love him and a woman came over to me and she was like how could you look at this like how could you why do you like him so much he obviously just like dislikes women so deeply um, and it just never occurred to me I don't know if that's true or not but even if it is true who cares <laughs> that wouldn't be that wouldn't it would never occur to me to evaluate a work on that basis. I mean, I guess I can see why. I mean, I I think I I don't think that pornography is a work of art. Uh, I don't watch much pornography myself, but I th- I think I could actually. There's there's a difference between erotic art and pornography, and the difference might be a moral difference, and so it might be that they differ aesthetically in virtue of their moral slash political commitments. So I I, I, can, I can understand looking at a work of art and thinking that it's um. It's, it's lack of interest in its subject or something. It's objectification of its subject in, in a certain way makes it, makes it a bad work of art, makes it prurient in a way that isn't positive. But I, I think that people are way too glib in these kinds of assessments because just in virtue of representing a naked woman or a emaciated woman, one would need to make many further arguments to, to make the argument that Sheila is objectifying the woman or that this is a is evidence of his sexism or something like that. Like, I think even if he was sexist, I still think it's a good work of art. I mean, or you could just find, you can talk about Degas and say, or I don't know, anybody who you can say is like objectively sexist or objectively dislikes, you know, any category of human, Jews, whatever it is, even if they do. Um, Heidegger, you know, let's talk to you about Heidegger. Yeah, he hates the Jews, is a Nazi. <laughs> was a Nazi, was definitely a Nazi. I think the important distinction, though, is that the distinction between the person's maybe documented, maybe inferred personal politics and then the politics of the artwork. Because I I think that some people are confused by this. Like some people think that it doesn't make sense to speak of the moral status or the political convictions of a work of art itself. Uh, But I think that it does make sense. And this is what some of my academic work is about. I think that you can evaluate uh, the attitudes of a work of art itself. And so I, I think that... There are cases in which I think that um, something being sexist or something having particular bad politics or ethical commitments does make it aesthetically bad, but that's not that's not always the case. And for, first, it's hard to establish that something like a painting is sexist, uh, or at least it's harder than just saying this is a painting of a naked woman. Oh my God, it's sexist! Like you'd have to do a lot more interpretive legwork than that. Uh, but then even if you do, it could still have aesthetic merit because it could still be beautifully constructed or whatever. Um, but I think that there are there are some cases where I do think that the bad political commitments of works of art make them aesthetically bad. It's just it's just not always true, and it's it, it's not it shouldn't it shouldn't be the only thing that you say about a work of art ever. Yeah, and it's I mean it can be 
it can be that it makes it bad in a certain way or certain parts of it bad in, in an aesthetic way and not other and other parts of it are still strong. So it could be more complicated in that. Yeah, I mean, like the human stain, for example, has like some some really good sections, even though there's some sections that I think are terrible because the female character is such a caricature. But it, it has like a traumatized vet, and like the sections about the traumatized vet, I think, are a lot better. Do you think that Sally Rooney, like, could write a book that's not like this, um, but she chooses not to, or do you think that like this is actual, like she's writing this way because this is actually how she sees the world? I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but do you have any view? I think it's it's hard to say just because I don't know Sally Rooney personally. Like the Sally Rooney that filters down to me is so clearly uh, a, a construction massaged by PR people, which is fine. I mean, when my books come out, my public identity will become a construction massaged by PR people, hopefully a successful one so that people buy my books. And and authors don't have so much say in that. I mean, they have some say, but not tons. And so I don't really know what her like personal capacities or ambitions are. Because, you know, it's hard, it's hard to write a good novel. So it, it could be that she really wasn't trying to produce fiction like this and she just failed. <laughs> it's unclear. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's a good point that, like, whatever comes out isn't necessarily what they want. I mean, no, nobody knows where they're going to end up once they start writing something. Did you know how this essay was going to turn out? I, I'm a compulsive outliner, so I outline every essay that I write. But it's the analytic philosopher in me wants to have all the arguments clearly mapped out and everything. So I, I know where all my essays are going. I don't know at the beginning of the outlining. That's sort of the stage at which I do my thinking through of things. Did you know who your... Um, who you were going to turn to, like which sources you were going to turn to. Did you know that Baldwin was like sort of in your pocket and Trilling was in your pocket before you started, right before you started the outline? Yeah, I think I, I did a little bit because it was just over the, over the course of several years, I, I read all these things or reread some of them. Um, and the ideas kind of all came, came to me in a confluence. And that was, I was compelled to outline because I sort of had uh, the Baldwin and the Trilling view at my disposal. And when you started reading these books, was it, was there chilling and Baldwin already in your head? Like when you first started reading Rooney's books, were you like, mm, moral realism? I do not think that I had read Trilling yet, actually, the first time that I read Sally Rooney. So no, I think, and, and, and my first Sally Rooney essay doesn't mention Trilling. The first Sally Rooney essay is about romance novels and how her, her work fits into that tradition. So no, but I, I think I had something like a trilling view because I think there's other people who defend a view like this and they've been percolating in my mind for a longer time. Like I read Heidegger as defending a similar sort of view and also Hannah Arendt and in her work about the importance of thinking. I think that both of them basically defend the idea that a certain kind of intellectual virtue is a moral virtue, which isn't to say that intelligence, like raw intelligence is a moral virtue or something, but rather that... Uh, the exercise of critical faculties and a, a sort of um, critical vigilance is, is a moral virtue. So I had that thought in my mind. And the moral obligation to be intelligent is obviously in that tradition. So, yeah. It's the same. It's all the same sort of school. Or at least that, that motion is the same motion. Yeah, it is. It is. But I, I, I mean, I had read some essays from that collection. Uh, but I, most of the stuff about moral realism is in the Enforcer book and the liberal imagination, which I haven't read yet. Thank you for running through all of that with me. Is there anything that you want to add about what was said in response to your essay that we haven't had the chance to cover yet? I'm not sure that I do. I think just because I don't totally have an understanding of the objections, uh, 
But I guess I would like to offer an open invitation to people to sort of write up more clearly what their objections are so I can think through them better. Okay. Well, I hope that we have the opportunity to have some kind of back and forth with you and um, some charitable interlocutor in the future. That would be great. I would relish that. Thank you for letting me pontificate about aesthetics and ethics, my favorite topic. I enjoyed it immensely, Becca. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and you have not yet subscribed, head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe. Very shortly, digital subscriptions will be available, which will allow you to access all Liberties issues, past and present, online, as well as print copies of the journal if you elect to receive them.